You're listening to the N2K Space Network. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. The point of debate in this morning's team meeting was whether or not it's okay to start a podcast with incoherent screaming. Hurting the ears of your listeners will make a lot of them very angry and is widely regarded as a bad move. So allow me to convey the emotion and break with the professionalism for a hot second and, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Starship, y'all, Starship! Round two, integrated flight test. It's finally happening. T-minus. Today is November 16th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. SpaceX receives a launch license for the Starship Super Heavy. NASA announces a successor to Bob Cabana. U.S. lawmakers postpone the vote on the Commercial Space Act. And our guest today is Dr. Peter Shaw, a senior lecturer in astronautics at Kingston University. Now for today's Intel briefing. And zero surprise what today's top story is. What else could it possibly be? SpaceX's Starship has been granted the FAA launch license it has been waiting for. We are a go for the second integrated flight test of the Starship Super Heavy on Saturday, November 18th. The flight window is a small one, 7 a.m. to 7.20 a.m. Central Time, Booster 9 and Ship 25 are already fully stacked at Boca Chica, and second verse not quite the same as the first. SpaceX made a lot of changes to the heavy lift vehicle after the first orbital flight attempt. Many of those optimizations were also mandated by the FAA in order to get the launch approval. Starship got some upgrades, some of which you can easily see, like the hot staging ring, which sits between both stages and should deflect flames from the second stage away from the first stage booster. And this time around, we should also expect a lot less debris during liftoff. Hopefully no more, uh, ahem, concrete rain, concrete rain. Thank you, thank you. The SpaceX teams have made a lot of improvements to the launch pad, like a brand new water deluge system for one thing. It's suspected that the undamped sound from launch as well as the debris chunks that the launch created damaged a number of the engines during liftoff on the first attempt, so it'll be interesting to see the difference it makes this time around. And while the goal is for Starship to get to orbital space and loop around the Earth before splashing down near Hawaii, 
if it looks like it won't be able to do that. Hopefully this time the flight termination system will work as soon as it is triggered instead of an uncomfortably long amount of time later because when you hit that self-destruct button, it really needs to work. SpaceX officially announced the second test late yesterday and this morning said that Starship is stacked for flight. This is another chance to put Starship in a true flight environment, maximizing how much we learn. Rapid, iterative development is essential as we work to build a fully reusable launch system capable of carrying satellites, payloads, crew, and cargo to a variety of orbits and Earth, lunar, and Martian landing sites. The first Starship flight test was earlier this year on April 20th, with 8.28 a.m. CDT as the scheduled launch and 8.33 a.m. CDT as the actual I'm curious what everyone's thoughts are on the over-under for actual launch time for Starship Round 2. Well, there really won't be any under, so scratch that one. But do you think the launch will be relatively on time? A scrub? Well, we shall see. That guarantee is legit. It is exciting. And as I'm sure you can tell, I'm excited for this, and you probably are too. If you're at Boca Chica, send us your views of Starbase. And we're rooting for the SpaceX team for a fantastic second launch of Starship on Saturday. Moving on to other items now, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson has named Jim Free as the agency's new associate administrator to succeed Bob Cabana. Jim Free is the current associate administrator of the Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate, which oversees the space launch system for Artemis. Free's deputy, Kathy Kerner, has been named as his successor at the Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate, and the change will come into effect in January. And an update on the Commercial Space Act of 2023, H.R. 6131, which we opened the show with yesterday. U.S. lawmakers in the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee approved some amendments to the bill yesterday, but the final vote on approval will not occur until after Thanksgiving. We've got a series of satellite communication stories now, starting with HughesNet. The company says its Jupiter-3 ultra-high-density satellite has successfully deployed its solar arrays and antennas, and the spacecraft has passed readiness testing by the manufacturer, Maxar Space Systems. Hughes is now testing the satellite communications with ground equipment, which it says is the final step before initiating broadband services for customers such as airlines, corporations, governments, and consumers of its popular HughesNet service. The Jupiter-3 satellite will bring over 5,000 gigabits of additional broadband capacity across North and South America. Viasat and Skylo Technologies have launched the world's first global direct-to-device network. According to the press release, the company's global infrastructure agreement will allow mobile network operators, device makers, and chipset manufacturers to take 3GPP Release 17 compliant products to market within Viasat's global network coverage. Viasat says the new network will support consumer smartphone services and unlock the potential for massive Internet of Things, automotive, and defense applications. Initial deployments are planned for early 2024 in North America using the Legado SkyTerra satellite network, followed by a global rollout. Mexico's government has secured a contract with Starlink to provide Internet coverage over the country until 2026 for a cool $89.8 million. Mexico says that the service will be offered for free for its citizens. Starlink is among nine companies to support the plan. They are also due to provide infrastructure for Mexico's state energy firm through December 2026, according to documents seen by Reuters. 
space robotics startup Gitai has successfully completed its corporate inversion, transitioning its headquarters and parent company from Gitai Japan to Gitai USA. Gitai says the move to shift the company's headquarters to the U.S. positions Gitai USA at the forefront of global operations. Most of the company's employees and the entirety of its manufacturing operations have already been relocated to Torrance, California. The announcement comes nearly one year after Gitai USA first launched operations in the U.S. The European Space Agency and ISAR Aerospace have signed a contract extension to develop an efficient new flight tracking and safety system for future rocket launches with ISAR Aerospace's Spectrum launch vehicle from Norway. The contract is provided through ESA's Boost program to support the development, deployment, and use of commercial space transportation services in Europe. ISAR Aerospace has established a partnership with Andoya Spaceport to launch small satellites from the Norwegian spaceport using ISAR Aerospace's Spectrum launch vehicle. In a team-up nobody expected, the UK and Florida have signed the 7th UK-US state-level Memorandum of Understanding to boost trade and investment. Okay, somebody expected it, but the agreement targeted high-potential sectors such as space and fintech and is designed to boost exports and investment between the UK and Florida. This MOU is the first one that the UK has signed that focuses on the space sector. And that concludes our intelligence briefing for today. As always, you'll find links to further reading in our show notes. Hey, T-Minus crew, if your business is looking to grow your voice in the industry, expand the reach of your thought leadership, or recruit talent, T-Minus can help. We'd like to hear from you. Send us an email at space at n2k.com or send us a note through our website so we can connect about building a program to meet your goals. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Shaw, a senior lecturer in astronautics at Kingston University. And the university has recently opened a new rocket propulsion R&D facility. And to start our conversation, I asked Peter to tell us more about the university. Kingston isn't maybe as well known in the space industry like Bath, uh, Leicester, the, the uh, university, sorry. But what we do focus and specialize in is on propulsion and chemical propulsion systems. So we, we run courses for our students, which is predominantly system engineering, 
taking really sort of the complex build of a satellite, trying to make students understand that if you change the size of the solar panels, how that will affect the structure, the mass, the volume. So really sort of like get them understanding, you know, basic system engineering uh, sort of principles. And then our, our focus on top of that is propulsion, um, launch propulsion, small uh, propulsion systems, third stage launcher sort of propulsion systems, all that sort of kind of work we do. Our piece de la resistance, our, our, our creme de la creme, um, is that we've got our own rocket test facility um, on site. Yes. Um, we've spent yes. about 400,000 uh, on that to date, and it's a fantastic facility. So what's unique compared to a lot of institutions is that the students that we have at Kingston, um, they come in, we give them the skills to design um, their own propulsion systems. We give them the facilities to actually build. So we've got a, a fantastically large workshop where students get to learn how to use the lathes, mills and drills. So it's not, you know, students going up to a technician saying, can you build this for us? It's them actually building it themselves, which is which is quite a unique opportunity. And, uh, and part of the fun also, I would imagine. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And then, uh, and then they get to take it into our, our test chamber and actually test fire uh, the rocket engines. And so this is at undergraduate level. Okay, so this isn't like research projects. This isn't PhDs. This is undergraduates getting the chance to fire, fire rockets. And then that uh, gives them the skills, which um, really helps them out for an engineering sort of job roles, really helps them out for propulsion uh, job roles and we've we've done really well the last couple of years we've had students um you know go to uh Immersat, rfa Augsburg, which is the big sort of like german launch uh, startup company uh, euro thrusters small spark space systems we've had internships internships at mag drive we're doing really really well thank you so much for setting the setting the story there because i when i saw the press release about the, the propulsion facility, I was really fascinated by it, not only because of uh, basically everything you just went through, but also the, the story about how you, the propulsion facility came to be. Um, could you tell us a little bit about like where it is and how you actually, because you had a huge part in making this happen, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that? First of all, it's building on the shoulders of giants, you know, type thing. There were a number of lecturers before I turned up who paved the way with the university to actually show that uh, rocketry and rocket experiments could be done uh, on campus. So we've actually been test firing engines for, for quite a number of years. But when I uh, turned up, what I was able to do was to bring a, a healthy hefty amount of of industrial experience and so we took the facility that we had at, at the time we basically dismantled it and we basically created a, a new a new chamber so our, our our current chamber is a um is a blast chamber and it's uh, licensed up to to take up to 120 gram um tnt explosive environment which effectively is you know putting two hand grenades inside the blast chamber um closing the door letting it go bang and you're okay uh sitting on the uh, on the outside but to add to that it's not just 120 gram tnt it's 120 gram tnt whilst an engine is fully firing so you've got all of the the flow of uh, the, the gases through the system and then on top of that, we've got all of the safety systems uh, which are involved with that, the gas monitoring, the pressure systems, the temperature, uh, the noise as well, because we are relatively close to other sort of residential buildings and so on. So we, we don't want to, we want to be good neighbors. 
and then also the gas monitoring and the, the being able to know exactly what we're, we're putting out into the atmosphere, which for most people who might not understand is mostly carbon dioxide, uh, water vapours, uh, a little bit of carbon monoxide, but not to uh, any dangerous uh, sort of levels. So yeah, it's really, really, uh, really interesting. A lot of people I talk to for the show, they, I shouldn't say a lot, but many people I talk to are working on space infrastructure, uh, sometimes research and facilities, uh, and a lot of times talking about the challenges and, and finding a place that's appropriate to do the work that you need to do while also being a good neighbor, keeping in mind the environmental challenges is is a big one. And I'm just uh, in admiration of what you all have been able to achieve, uh, and especially, again, opening up so much for uh, students so they can learn. And also, um, from the release, I'm reading a lot of different partnerships as well. Could you tell me a bit about those partnerships? Because they sound fascinating. So one of the, the the good things is a bit of self-promotion here. Of you know, I'm also part of the Space Skills Advisory Panel, which is a, a panel of, of experts which um, uh, advise uh, government departments uh, and the UK Space Agency. So it's really helped with networking. Uh, and what I'm able to do is then bring that networking uh, into into the university. Um, and I'm also part of a few other things, the, the Space Universities Network, the, the Space Academic uh, Network, um, and the UK Propulsion uh, Working Group. So all of these kind of external activities that, that I get involved with, I'm then able to bring these experts uh, into. And, and one of the key things, and the things that I really enjoy, is actually um, uh, introducing the students that I have to these companies so that they can get involved in internships uh, and, and job placements. So one of these uh, opportunities was with Small Spark Space Systems. They've been really uh, helpful uh, with assisting us in, in the final stages of the commissioning of, of the Rocket Lab. And in turn, we helped to test fire uh, some of their early engine uh, prototypes and developments. During that process, I had a team of students, uh, undergraduates, uh, to help me out during the testing. And they, the company liked what they saw uh, and pretty much uh, hired as an intern one of our, our students pretty much on the spot, which is a fantastic story. It's not a, a unique thing. We, we've, we've done a, a lot of good work with a lot of companies uh, and we've had a lot of good internships um, you know, uh, as well. So our students are getting some really good sort of uh, insight. That, that just makes me so happy to hear. On, on a personal level, I just I love stories like that. With that view that you have, uh, a, a macro view of uh, the UK space sector, which is really growing and quite quickly too, that view that you have of... Uh, the the need for uh, the growing workforce. What do you see as sort of a gap that needs to be filled in terms of capabilities or anything? Yeah, I'm just curious what your thoughts are. This is something that I spend a lot of time talking to other people and uh, about. Um, and as I see it, there are a, a few things. Okay, um, immediately, what companies can do is get involved with um, the spin internship program. Okay, uh, it's run through the satellite catapult. And that is a really good sort of entry level into what's, you know, uh, how how can I help? And that is a meaningful way to help. There's also uh, a program run by the UK SEDS, which is spaceprojects.co.uk, which is another way of, of getting involved with um, undergraduates. Now, taking that a step aside, looking at the space skills gap, okay, that we do have some significant issues, okay? One of the biggest things that I 
trying to 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 win and influence people over um, is the idea of a new learned body. So you've got the Institute of Mechanical Engineers, you've got the Institute of Physics, you've got the Royal Aeronautical Society, and they play a big pivotal role. The um, uh, if you look at the statistics done by Space Skills Alliance, the majority of people who are in the space workforce have degrees from either the um, courses accredited by the Institute of Physics or courses accredited by the Royal Aeronautical Society. Okay, And these institutes, they accredit um, uh, the university courses, and which means that every five years, a university course has to uh, you know, uh, meet certain requirements to get a rubber stamp and say, you're fit to do the course. The issue which not a lot of people realize or, or understand is that the accreditation um, you know, for space courses uh, or courses which are offer space, there are handbooks and guidebooks given out by institutes like the Royal Aeronautical Society. And the only mention in their handbook is to do with spacecraft is we would like to see more space courses there is no guidance in those handbooks which say you need to cover this area, you need to uh, think about this area, you need to do this when considering space, uh, you know, space engineering courses. And that has a big impact on what the universities are actually designing in their university courses and hence what uh, skills and curriculum and content, which is then actually given out uh, to the workforce. And what we're finding is that in this new space economy, where there is, where it's no longer big primes, it's no longer the Airbuses, the BA systems. You've got a whole explosion of startups and 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 SMEs, uh, you know, uh, coming into the system. They keep on talking about this conversation of of needing people with experience. They need people with two or three years' experience. They need well, I'm going to turn that on the head. And what they actually need, in my opinion, okay, is students with the right content, knowledge, and skills to be able to join their workforce. And the problem is that what universities tend to do at the moment is we develop you know, uh, chemists, we develop engineers, we develop physicists, we develop X, Y, and Z. And what the space industry needs, which is a multidisciplinary sector, you know, you need multidisciplinary skills, is that we need to have a more nuanced approach. We need uh, graduates coming out with hands-on practical experience, with uh, uh, knowledge in electronics, with knowledge in engineering, with knowledge in, in certain physics with knowledge of certain computer processes like, you know, the, for the development of using applied AI in our systems. And we need to wrap that into a bundle and we need to send out. But unless we have an accrediting structure or a learned body, Institute of Space or Institute of Space Technology, uh, UK PLC, we're not going to get that because we have instead a lot of the other institutes focused on their sort of domain areas and so those students go into the workforce with only a partial part of the portfolio of skills that startups and SMEs are really seeking and wanting and until we get a grip and really solve that issue and you know somebody you know stands up and says I'm going to you know, start the Institute of Space Technology or Space Engineering and we have some funding and have some membership funding you know, uh, into that. We're going to be having the same problem, in my opinion, in five years' time, 10 years' time, 15 years' time. 
We'll be right back. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Welcome back. And avid listeners might remember that a couple of months ago, you might have heard the beautiful soundscapes made from several years of data from ESA's Aeolus satellite. The blips and doots and blahs represent data points gathered from the Aeolus as it recorded winds across the Earth, the massive impact of the Tonga volcanic eruption, and even captured the eerie global quiet during the beginning of the global COVID-19 pandemic. And while there's sheet music for it, it'd be quite a challenge to actually play that composition, though you are welcome to try. So it's a different approach for the latest composition of sonified data from NASA's Chandra, Hubble, and Spitzer telescopes, with a piece written by composer Sophie Kastner called Sounds of Space, where parallel lines converge. This piece translates into music the X-ray, visible, and infrared data from a composite image of our galactic center, focusing on the X-ray binary, arched filaments, and the supermassive black hole Sagittarius A-star. So in a way, we can have an audio experience of the image, which is great for a podcast, of course. Those are real instruments being played by real human musicians, and they're called the Ensemble Eclat. And I love that the tempo marking at the top of the sheet music describes the mood of the piece as dark and mysterious. Composer Sophie Kastner said, I approached the form from a different perspective than the original sonifications. Rather than scanning the image horizontally and treating the x-axis as time, I instead focused on small sections of the image, creating short vignettes corresponding with these occurrences approaching the piece as if I was writing a film score to accompany the image. Because the galactic center image was so full of information, of material, I wanted to draw the listener's attention to smaller events within the greater data set. And yes, if you've got a chamber group and you'd like to try your hand at this, the sheet music for Kastner's Where Parallel Lines Converge is freely available. That's it for T-Minus for November 16th, 2023. 
For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. From the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Caruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester. With original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.